one of my teachers, one of the things that she taught me is shame, blame, and guilt aren't emotions. We actually think they're emotions. She says they're actually where we go to hide from emotions. And so when shame, blame, or guilt shows up in the room, one of the first questions I ask is, what are you trying not to feel? Friends, this is real. The human species is at a choice point. Will this be our evolutionary crash or our evolutionary leap? My name is Gibran Rivera. I'm a facilitator, and this is my podcast. This is a podcast for people who want to leap. Here, I am inviting you into a conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. In this episode, I want to introduce you to my friend, Juanita Robertson. She's a master facilitator, an author, and an all-around wise woman. She brings a refreshing perspective on race and human development. She's concerned with initiation, and she's about to launch the Fire and Water Leadership Rites of Passage cohort. Get ready for a fire hose of brilliance. I can't wait for you to get to know her. Enjoy. Juanita, it is so good to be in conversation with you this afternoon. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you for the invitation. What a wonderful treat. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very excited about it. Uh, we actually haven't spent that much time together, but the time that we have spent has felt so rich. And I've, can, I've really have felt uh, you're a kindred spirit. And so I just wanted the people that I know that give their time to this podcast to to get to know you and to find out something about you. I'm excited about the divine timing and order of things. I think you're right. We haven't got to spend that much time together, but I look forward to, you know, this time together and what's to come. <laughs> yes, I do I do see I do see more coming for sure. And you know, you and I are are in the same business, right? Uh, the business of yeah. bringing people together and, and helping us become whole and really striving for, for a world that is more just and, and a human presence on the planet that is more sustainable than what it is right now, uh, kind of coming to terms with our past so that we can carve a better future together. Yeah. That's at least how I interpret you. Yeah, and I think it's the helping to the remembrance that we're spiritual beings having a human experience, not the other way around. <laughs> that is the magic of it all, really. And I think when we remember that, things things begin to change. Definitely. And I know you do that in all kinds of ways. Uh, but what I wanted to get right to, I wanted people to hear about and learn about, is this uh, fire and water leadership rights of passage cohort that you are bringing together can you that there's so much there fire water rights of passage the leadership uh, what is this project about <laughs> yeah so first i'll start with the name fire and water so fire and water came about because one of the traditions that i practice um is the dagra medicine wheel is and in that wheel i am a water spirit which means that the medicine i bring to the world is centered around forgiveness and reconciliation and bridge building and peacemaking and my um, co-host in this journey tennyson wolf is a fire spirit and so he brings the medicine of the connection with the ancestors in the dream world and um forward um vision and, you know, moving through the world. And so the, together, the two of us are going to be holding space for a 16-month leadership rites of passage cohort <laughs> that starts in August. And what what is going to happen there? So part of that 16-month is, you know, when we first started the conversation about fire and water, it's centered around the fact that we as um, a culture, as such an adolescent culture, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bill Plotkin has said that only about 10% of our adult population are truly initiated adults. Mm -hmm. And so we're stuck with this. Well, how did we initiate adults in this culture? Right. And so what we decided is, you know, that's through a rites of passage. 
Um, and we got to talking about, so what does that look like? You know, we spend tons of money every year in this culture on leadership development. And I don't think we have a lack of leaders. I think leadership just means people are following you. I think we have a lack of wise leaders. Right. And so, you know, it's about developing wise leadership. Right. Yeah. That's powerful. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, you know, I have been privileged to to have received a number of momentous initiations that that have come to shape my life. And I am the father of an eight-year-old boy, and I, I look forward to the right moment to, to invite him and his peers into initiation because a lot of what I'm concerned with uh, right now is is the state of men and 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 what the poor state of men is is doing to the world is doing to the earth is doing to women is doing to children and I, I I resonate with you I think it is part of being in a dominant culture that does not uh, hold uh, rites of passage with the same intention and care and wisdom that our ancestors have so I'm I'm really excited that you're doing this. Yeah, it's, you know, but I think one of the things that, you know, our ancestors had it and we had it in our culture and Melodomas Omey from West African Burkina Faso, he's held that he says one of the things about he thinks in the West is part of the way that we've initiated ourselves is through trauma. It's our souls know that our souls that we have to be initiated for the soul development. And so in trying to make that happen, it calls up trauma in our life. And, you know, um, to, uh, to give us an opportunity to be initiated. And so for me, the question was, how do we do that in a different way? How do we start creating processes where we are, um, where we do have a place where we can come and be initiated? And to me, some of that starts with initiating the adults, because then they can become initiated elders that can then initiate the youth. That sounds, I have, there's so many, so many threads that I want to pull on from there. I found deep resonance in what you just said. And one of the questions that I often bring up in my podcast is, is one that I wrestle with quite a bit. And it's, uh, it's this question of trauma. And, and the way I, I look at it and think of it is there's, there's something really important and really powerful about the evolution of the trauma discourse in this work and in this, in this kind of this cultural stage of development. There's, it's out front in a very powerful way. Uh, and people are aware that they've experienced trauma in their lives, of the idea that communities experience trauma and that there's such a thing as generational trauma. And I, I think of all of this as a net positive. Uh, at the same time, part of what I wrestle with, and I think it's part of what you're pointing towards, is a tendency to kind of want to get stuck there. Uh, I, I often describe it as a tendency to to kind of rock our trauma, right? There's, so, there's a payoff to that identity of yeah. saying, hey, treat me with care, keep me safe. I have experienced trauma yeah. that I often experience as limiting uh, how far we can go together because in order to get far together, the plane has to shake. We need to get pushed, right? And so I end up with this tension of yeah. knowing, celebrating, honoring the fact that we are naming this trauma, but also really experiencing the limitations of the shadow side in the spaces that I often yeah. hold. Uh, so, yeah, what yeah. can you say about that? Yeah, because naming, naming it is just the first part, right? Because it really is the victim archetype that comes with trauma, you know? And with the victim archetype, we can become, the shadow side of it is the unconscious piece of it. But we can choose if we can acknowledge, oh, this is present to then move into the light side of the of the trauma or the victim archetype, which is there to teach us something. Right. right? If everything is purposeful, then it has something for us. It has a gift for us. Right. But it's not until we are willing to go through the whole experience of healing that we get access to the gift of the wound of the experience. Right, right. And I think so often, you know, um, because we have such an adolescent culture. What happens is adolescents want all of the freedom and none of the responsibility. And so even with our trauma, 
We want the freedom to be able to have the trauma, but not the responsibility that says you have to tend to it and heal it yourself. Right. And that you're the only one who can make that choice. That's right. That is right. That's right. That's right. And so you end up kind of demanding that the spaces that we hold kind of shape themselves around the wound that you're holding rather than calling in a process of 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 communal of collective yeah. healing right i think is a yes because because staying in the trauma allows you to stay in victim but the gift that the victim archetype has for you is the opportunity to step into victor right yeah. right exactly exactly you know i am as i'm listening to you uh another part that came up for me was this idea of eldering, right? And this idea that, so for example, I'm talking, I've been talking to a dear, dear friend. Uh, her name is, her name is Cindy Suarez. And she has been sharing with me some of these ideas that she's also been sharing with this other woman, uh, Misting Get Smith. And they've been talking about the social sector. And mm-hmm. they've been talking about a pattern there of, of people who are in leadership positions, uh, broadly speaking, they they are generally white women who came up in the '60s who self-conceive as being part of the revolution, as being radical, kind of almost forgetting that you know, 40 years on, mm-hmm. you're part of some things have institutionalized, right? And and there is kind of a holding on to power, if you can call running a nonprofit power, but holding yeah. on to those to the reins of these organizations uh, because you actually have no place to go because there's no tradition of eldering, yes, right? And so then you end up with another generation coming up oftentimes, and again, I'm speaking in broad strokes, composed of, uh, of women of color, yeah. highly capable women of color, more connected to the communities that these organizations are serving and kind of being held back by this, by this lack of, of eldering. I don't know if that's a yeah. pattern that you've observed. Uh, I don't know what, what, what you would say about this in relation to the work that you're doing. Yes, and I think it's really prominent in some of the retreat centers. There was a, a wave or a time that um, there were these retreat centers being created all across the country by these white women. And what happened, though, is a lot of them didn't really, because they just did the work. They didn't set in secession planning. And so a lot of them are struggling right now because they've held on so long, there's no place for someone else to step into the leadership. Um, and so, you know, I, I know a couple of places that have um, ended up having to close because they, they couldn't let go. They, there was no place, like you said, if, if they didn't understand the place of eldering, there's no place for them to go until it dies. And if the organization right. is centered around one person ever, it can't be sustainable for the long term, right? Because we're all going to die at some point. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's one thing we can be sure of. <laughs> yes, I, I heard. I was. I've been listening to Sam Harris recently, and his waking up app. And just today, he was talking. You know, it's like we really are all on the, the deck of the Titanic. Like the ice, the, the iceberg gets all of us, right? Yes. And so it's kind of gripping. It's not helpful. Yes, I, I, we're all born with that angel on our shoulder, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So how do we befriend it? How do we befriend it? Yes. Um, you know, this is a little technical, but I, but it's something I'll, I'll tell you where my question is coming from. When we when we talked about this this fire and water leadership rights of of passage cohort, yes. One thing that intrigued me is almost technical, but I think important is the way I understand it is individuals are opting into being part of this cohort. So yes. that's, in, that's important to me for me to ask because I end up facilitating, I facilitate a lot of cohorts. I love doing it. Yeah. And I'm not the convener of 95% of them, right? Yeah. The cl- my, my institutional client convenes and then I'm called in to, like, yeah. to hold the fellowship together, which is work I... I am born to do. I am grateful for it. I want to be clear about that. But it implies a different contract with both the client and the cohort member, right? And one of the things that I'm longing for, one of the things that I want more of in my work 
It's more of that, like making it possible for individuals to opt into my work so that I can have a different contract, a different kind of consent agreement with them uh-huh. so that some of the harder work can get done. You know, the way I, the way I speak of it, it sounds funny, but I do mean it. I need to be able to look at the member and the participant in the eye and say, hey, I think you might be at the wrong place, yeah. right? What you're looking for is not what we're doing here. Yeah. And that's harder to do in the current context in which I work. So I want to know how you got there. I want to know what that looks like. Yeah, for you. you and I do a lot of the same similar work, right? So, so I'm often in front of groups that, um, as well as Tennyson, and we're in front of groups that we've been contracted to come in. And so the employer has hired us or an organization has hired us to be with the people we're with in the room. And so they, you know, oftentimes they're coming because it's part of their job and not because they've just really said eagerly yes to the invitation, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that we wanted is we wanted, first of all, we asked the question, so what is it that we have to offer and bring? And how do we provide that in a way that's more open so people have more access and that we can really go any place that we want with people, you know? And so we decided that we were going to create this cohort and we weren't waiting to be connected to a foundation or an organization. We were just going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so we created the 16-month Leadership Rights of Passage program where people... um, they apply, we have an application process, and then we have an interview process. And part of the interview is we not only want a diverse group of people in this rites of passage, which is unique in and of itself, I think, um, but we also you know, want people who are making a commitment. 16 months isn't a short period of time. There's three retreats in the 16 months, and it's a $6,500 program. And so there's a cost to it. Um, and some people have found, you know, other ways of uh, founding foundations to help support them in coming through and, and different creative ways. And we are always willing to be in conversation with people around that. But it's a commitment. You're not going to just, you know, accidentally fall into this. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. It, so- it sounds beautiful. And it sounds like, yeah, it just creates a different set of conditions for the deep work that that, that we're talking about. Yeah. Right. When people opt in at that level. Definitely. Um, I can't wait to see how it goes, and I'm really glad you're doing it. Are you drawing on particular traditions for this uh, rites of passage work? So, yes and uh, yes, I guess I would say. And the reason uh-huh. I say yes and yes is, um, you know, of course, we bring our traditions, um, Tennyson and I. Um, but also, one of the questions that met us really early in the, you know, in this process was the question around most initiation is done culturally specific. So how do we do a culturally specific diverse initiation? Right. And so what we decided, the way that we would tend to that is that every participant coming through our program will have access to their ancestral DNA. Mm -hmm. And then they can choose which lineage they want to dive deeper into. And then we will use the myths and the stories from the cultures of the people we have in front of us to take us through the 16 months. Beautiful. You know, and so it's a new kind of initiation, even though it's culturally specific, we still are going together. So we are doing it in a diverse manner. Nice. That sounds that sounds like a good way to experiment with this. With this, Yeah, yeah we need to learn as long as we're going to live in, in a pluralistic, diverse context. Yes. Uh, we need to figure out ways to go through some of these things together. And it, it and, gets challenging. And one of the ways that that looks is like at the very beginning, um, one of the first assignments um, that the participants have is to research and find a creation story from mm-hmm. the ancestry that you're diving deeper into. So everyone will find their own story. Right. <laughs> well, you know, who our ancestors were are a part of who we are. Not only do does that contain the ancestral wounds, but it contains the ancestral gifts as well. Right. Right. I mean... This, a word, a term that I'm using for my work more recently is ancestors in training, right? And, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's this idea that the only way that we have become the first generation of people to actively steal from the future, right? We're stealing from our descendants, right? Yeah. Which is counter-evolutionary, right? It is against life. 
Yeah. Uh, it's because we have forgotten our ancestors, right? We yeah. we cut off the line in one way. We're inevitably going to collect to cut it off in the other direction. It's almost like we are already hyper individualistic. Yes. In how we live together on this in this time, but we also have become individualistic in terms of the arc of time. We 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 think that we are. It's almost like we think we just kind of came out of nowhere onto this earth, and it's it's a. It, I think it's a big part of what leads to the behavior that we're exhibiting on the planet right now. Of course, because we can't give what we don't have. Right. And so you know, being such an adolescent culture. You know, part of what wisdom gives you is the understanding of the connectedness of things. Mm -hmm. And so if we stay as an adolescent behavior, we think it's all about us Mm -hmm. and we can't see further. And that's, you know, part of the need that we see is how that's what what wise leadership does. It steps into being able to hold larger complexities and consider more and more of the whole than just the individual. You know, it's that paradox of holding both. The I matters, but the we does too. And how do we hold both of those? That sounds so right. And uh, I'm, again, really feeling into this alignment that we have uh, regarding regarding what we're doing here on this earth. Uh, I know that you are uh, three times an author, that you're currently working on a book. And and the name of it uh, seems to harken back to important ancestral history, at least, uh, for Black people on this continent. Uh, The Enneagram Railroad, at least that's how I understood it. Uh, Tell me more about that book that you're currently working on. It's the Enneagram Railroad. Uh The Enneagram Railroad, it's a 40-day journey to remembering self and spirit, and it's the book I'm currently working on and looking for a publisher for. And the whole idea was um, how do we heal the ancestral legacy of slavery in this culture, on this land? And, um, and it came first, it's, it uses, I use the Dagra medicine wheel from West Africa and Burkina Faso to take us through a 40 day journey. And I kind of tell my fire story, then take us to a fire week. And then I tell my water story and take us to a water week. And each day we have activities and quotes and affirmations and, um, and, um, and a ritual and a writing experience to do to take us through the healing process. And the book even though it's focused on healing the ancestor legacy of slavery, I think one of the biggest misconceptions in our culture is that slavery and the wounds of slavery is just held by people of color. And that's not true. You know, to enslave another, a part of you has to be enslaved as well. And so the book is open to all of us. And I speak a little bit about the slave archetype and about how the slave archetype isn't negative or positive. It actually is quite neutral. And the shadow side of the slave archetype is being a slave to a person, a thing, or even an idea. But the light side of the slave archetype is being a slave to the divine spirit within. It's actually how we find our freedom. And so this country built on that legacy, you know, it gives us our doorway on how we reclaim our own freedom and our own divine selves. Wow, that sounds really bold and, and really beautiful and it's interesting because you use the, the term slave. I, I, you know, I think about Islam, right, and the meaning uh, to submit, right. You can, there is something to to surrender uh, to to something good, something higher, something powerful, right. That that has a liberation embedded in it. I feel like it's a you you're making a a, a bold, a bold and courageous proposal here, Cornita. Well, part of it is because I believe that the world is out to gift us and not to get us. Mm-hmm. And so everything that shows up is an opportunity for that gifting. Right. But we have to ask deeper questions. And so often I think we're just um, a country with such a low question literacy rate that we don't ask the deeper question. What's the question underneath the question? Yes. You know? What is it trying to gift my soul with? Again, as we talked about before, when we really get that we're spiritual beings having a human experience and not the other way around, we ask different questions. Right, right, right. I I, I noticed that earlier, and I've noticed that in, in all of our conversations, that you 
you certainly concern yourself with what questions you are asking, right? It, it, it is very evident to me that this is this is an orientation for you. How did you come up on that orientation? Well, I think part of it is that I have lots of people in my life who ask questions <laughs> and and who you know have challenged me. I remember once, uh, probably about six or seven years ago, Tennyson asked me, so what question, if you knew it, would change your life forever? And I thought, oh my God, I have no idea (laughs) what what that would be. And he goes, okay, let's go to a level underneath. So what question, if you knew it, could you live into for like two to three years? And so the question I came up with that I've actually been living in for over six years now is what if I really did believe that everything was in divine order? How would I walk through the world differently? How would I treat people differently? What questions would I ask differently? And so that question has just been working me and and moving me through. Give me me one example. I'm sure you have so many in in a six-year period of of how that question has come into play, how asking that question has impacted your perspective on, on on a lived experience over the last six years, last couple of years. Yes. Okay. So uh, a couple of years ago, I did the, um, I was invited to do the keynote for the National Diversity Conference in Brazil. And um, I got my invitation letter about a month beforehand and, and I had applied, you know, I, um, online for permission to get in, come into the country. And, but I didn't understand until probably a, about a week and a half before I left that to get a visa to go you have to take, at that point, you had to take your, your all your stuff to the Brazilian embassy. And for where I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, the place is in D.C. And when I realized someone's like, okay, there's no way you're going to be able to do this in time. It was right after the Brazilian Olympics, which they had a waiver going, except for three days before I was going to leave. <laughs> so I was just missing the waiver. And so I even called, there's places that you can expedite, you can send your stuff to them in D.C. and then they'll take it through the embassy. But they all told me, you don't have enough time. There's not going to be enough time. You're not going to get the ticket. You're not going to get the visa before you have to leave. And so I'm just, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get, I'm contacting Brazil. Like the government is who invited me in. Can't they pull some strings? And everybody's like, nope, there's nothing we can do. And so I finally just decide, okay. If everything's in divine order, then all I need to do is to do my part. Maybe the process was just that I was supposed to go through this process as if I was going to go to Brazil, but I'm not really supposed to go there. But I need to go through the steps and keep my commitment. And so my kid's godfather actually lives in D.C. I overnighted him all my information and he took it to the Brazilian embassy, which he happens to work down the street from. <laughs> and and, wow. in. and on a Friday at, on a Friday at noon, he sent me the picture of everything he had just turned in. That Saturday, the next day on Saturday, I got my visa in the mail. And I said, I can't get mail in one day in Cincinnati, let alone from DC. <laughs> right. Amazing. Amazing. And, and so it's this piece, but I think because the waiver had been there, they didn't have a backlog. So as soon as he took it in, they pro- they processed it and sent it through. Well, I could have said, you know, there's no way I'm going to get it. I'm just not going to be able to go. Gotcha. gotcha. But in that believing everything was in divine order, I just kept my commitment and kept doing what my part of the deal. Right. And I think, I think part of what I'm getting and I, and I, I feel this to be true just based on our interactions is that the outcome could have been other, right? Yeah. And you could probably still be telling me this story like it was all in divine order, yeah. right? It, 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 when you have that perspective, then it's how you live the process, right? How you live your life and how you encounter the challenge. Yeah. That matters almost more than the outcome that you get in the end. Yes, and, and what are the times where I'm not trusting? You know, so it shows up in uh-huh. both ways, right? The times that I really see, oh, I've trusted. That was an an example of me trusting the divine order. But, you know, I had written about probably 17,000 words for the Underground Railroad. Um, And um, we had a robo drive that was backing up our computers on two different hard drives. And for whatever reason, it was backing up every computer in the house but mine. And so my computer crashed and I lost the book. All of it. 
And, and I was just heartbroken. I just was, you know, I know my friends were tired of hearing me bellyache about, oh my gosh, the book is gone. And, and I was with a friend and he says to me one day, he says, so Juanita, um, what age did this book want to be written at? Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, okay, look at that bookshelf over there. Some of those books were written from young adult age. Some of them are written from adolescence. Some of them are written from, you know, um, what what age does your book want to be written from? And I said, it wants to be an elder book. Mm. And he says, oh, good. That's what I thought you would say. So what age was the writing that you've done written from? And I laughed and I said, probably adolescent. <laughs> and he says, he says, so it's not that your stories that you wrote didn't want to be in the book. They wanted to be in the book in a different way. Wow. And, you know, and what I've learned as I went on is part of the promise of the healing journey is that if we step into our journeys of healing, the old stories will be completely taken away and replaced with new ones. Yes. Ache. <laughs> That resonates very, very deeply for me. Even even as you were speaking, I was remembering what to this stage in my life, you know, and, you know, life life will have more turns. But to this stage in my life remains the hardest period in my life. And uh, and it was a period of life coming apart, life falling apart, and, and life falling apart because of my own, because of my own failings, my own undoings. Uh, and... As I came to become who I am today through that process, what became really clear is what was being taken away from me were things that I did not have. I would not have had the courage to give up, right? Yeah, I love that. Like those 17,000 words, you know, it would have been really hard for you to say, I'm going to set them aside and rewrite this from a different voice. Definitely. And not only that, what I realized later when I was writing the, writing it the second time through is the first writing through was my warrior walk. Mm-hmm. It was me doing my own healing in the writing. Yeah. The healing, the writing was healing me. And it was an on the ground kind of walk. Right. The next writing process was a wisdom walk. Mm. And it was an up in the air kind of walk. Right. <laughs> see from perspective that was different than I when I was in it. Right. And that's the, that's the difference between the elder book and the adolescent book. That is so powerful. I appreciate it what the when you were talking about what voice, right? Mm-hmm. You were gonna write this book from. Uh, I remembered your other two vo- your other yeah. two books as well as this leadership cohort, which seems to have a concern with adolescence. Will you tell us a little bit about the other two books that you wrote and about your relationship to this particular stage of life and your observations about it? Yeah, so um, some of the work that I used to do is I used to do a mother-daughter's rites of passage program. Um, I actually started the year my daughter was born. She's 15 now. So (laughs) I did that years ago. Um, And I have other... Um, kids in my life besides my, I have a 17 year old son and a 15 year old daughter, but I have some community kids as well. Um, and one of them is a um, young man. He just turned 18, but when he turned 13, I always say he's my 0.5 son. I tell him his mother won't let me claim all of him. So, <laughs> <laughs> but so I claim half of him. And um, when he was, when he just turned 13, I wanted to do a birthday gift for him and what I decided was I was going to ask the men that I knew to complete the sentence. I wish somebody would have told me blank when I was 13. And it was designed just to be a gift for him. It wasn't designed to be a book. Um, but, you know, spirit always has different plans than I do. <laughs> um, usually way bigger. Um, and so I reached out to a group of men that I know on Facebook, actually, through Facebook Messenger. And I didn't know when I did it that that would be significant because what happened when I asked them to send in answers to that question, and I wanted to get at least 13 of them to give to this boy, and I thought, if I got more, what a blessing. What I didn't count on was that they would be able to see each other's responses. And so the men started saying things like, 
oh, you know, this is like church. Wow. <laughs> or, you know, oh, I feel so blessed or um, honored to be invited to do this. Or one man said, there's so much that I wish that I knew, I just didn't realize it yet. And I realized, you know, we're asking for a men, for a men for so many things, but we're not asking for their wisdom. Mm. And, you know, and they're just hungry to give it. And so um, it was so sweet. And it's even sweet to me now because the book has, I think I ended up with 66 quotes from men in 11 different countries around the world and all people who I know through from the age of 17 through their 70s. And um, one of the men was at one point said, this needs to be a book for more than just Jason. And so that's kind of how the first book came about. It, it came about just kind of in this um, gifting way. It was supposed to just be a, a birthday gift for this 13-year-old boy that I knew and turned into this book. Um, and then the second one is Soul Growing too. It's Wisdom for 13-Year-Old Girls from Women Around the World. And so, you know, I did one for the boys. And then, of course, with my daughter, I needed to do one for girls as well. That is beautiful and, and important. And let me ask you, I think so much of what's happening um, right now culturally, and I think it's, it's one of the most important and beautiful steps forward, is that we, uh, people that might identify with our gender, um, are becoming more aware of gender nonconforming uh, folks, uh, of trans folk. And, uh, you know, I am also somebody that works a lot with the, with the masculine energy, the feminine energy, understanding those as a way to, to move forward. Uh, how are you working with that inclusion there? How yeah. are you bringing that into this work that you're doing? Yeah, so this is something I think that is being really tricky for a lot of us. And part of it is one of the questions I asked um, in Brazil when I was asked to come speak, I was asked to come speak under around gender, actually, and not race. <laughs> um, but I, um, one of the things that I said there is I think that we can know more walk through the world like we're body blind than we can like we're colorblind. And so, mm -hmm. yes, there's these conversations that we need to be in around gender identity, around sexual orientation, around just the masculine and feminine. What does that mean to carry the different energies inside of us and external? But I feel like so many of the conversations that I've heard being had around it actually lacks a maturity because there's not initiated elders in the room. Right. And so part of it for me is that, you know, initiation also traditionally has done, been gender specific. Right. And I think that there's, you know, I'm, I'm sit with the question of if it's not gender specific or if we, if we don't choose which route we go through, then how do we initiate these adults? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and how do you go through the process? And there was a young man in Brazil who asked me when I said, women can't initiate men into being men. And he was so worried. It was a gay man because what I was saying to him was that he needed to be initiated by men. And he was concerned. And I said to him, oh, no, honey, I'm not just talking about old people. I'm talking about elders. Mm -hmm. And elders can see themselves. So, of course, they can see all of you. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece I think we're missing in the conversation. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think that, that we've kind of turned the wrong corner on is we think we can dictate language instead of negotiate. Uh -huh. Language has always been about relationships and negotiation and moving forward together. Right. But in the gotcha culture, we think we can demand that people say or do or be who we want them to be. And that's not the way it's ever worked. That's an adolescent way of holding it. Mm. But there's a lot, there's a lot packed in there and a lot of power in the words that you're using. I, I, I'm sitting with them and holding them because I know, yeah, I know, I know what happens in, in the spaces that we hold where for sake of inclusion, um, you end up with a with a sort of tyranny, right? And so how yeah. 
how, though, can we address, right, the exclusion uh, yeah. of that, that has been kind of held so violently for so long? Uh, what is what is What are the wise ways to do this work? Well, and I think part of the wise way is community. Right. You know, the answer to any problem is community, yeah. right? And one of the things, I do a lot of work in circle and circle practice. And one of the reasons I love circle is circle is an opportunity for us to remember not only that we belong to each other, but that we are each other. Mm. And so when we spend time and we build relationship, and I get that feeling of the we together, right. it changes everything. Yeah. That's the medicine, for sure. For that sure. Is the I think that's why both you and I have devoted so much of our time and life to to this we space and and why why we might react so strongly to to this move towards further separation uh, under the guise of of liberation. Yeah. Uh, because real, I think real inclusion is is everyone free to bring their gifts to the right, table. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and in some ways, because I attract who I am in some ways, you know, I think that um, it's 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 really, you know, I say that and I have a little hesitation I hear in my voice because I don't want people, you know, um, to go to the piece of blame, shame and guilt, because I don't think that that has that doesn't serve anybody. Right. Um responsibility does. Right. Blame, pain, and guilt doesn't. Right. <laughs> and, um, and I think we live in a country that's married the two of them together. Yes. Um, but, but they don't, they're, they're not the same thing. Yeah. Matter of fact, oftentimes we go to blame, shame, and guilt so we don't have to take responsibility. Right. Right. You know? Right. You know, <laughs> it's funny that I, I almost feel like your assessment of this tendency as adolescent is, it's almost generous. I was uh, I was having a beautiful and challenging fathering moment, parenting moment. My wife and I were having a parenting moment. Uh, though some of it landed in a kind of father-son place. This just this weekend. And it was exactly about that. It was really exactly about, hey, what does taking responsibility look like, right? Yeah. And the hesitation in taking responsibility because because it felt like almost like the shame of doing that felt overwhelming, right? And I was like, no, dude, like there's literally nothing you can do yes. that will challenge this love that I have for you. I can't, there's, there's no action. There's nothing you can do yeah. that will make me love you any less, right? But we move forward, right? Yeah. We, all of us, I think generally, but, you know, in this day and age, raising a young man is when we take responsibility. Yeah. It's just integral to doing this. And, uh, and so anyway, what, where I'm going is, it's, me, it's almost like be, before adolescence, it's a childish stance, right? To go to, the, to, to go to this location. Well, I think part of it is because we live in a culture that so tells us you are what you do and not who you are. Mm. But, you know, our job as community is to remind each other the truth of who we are and to say, you're not what you did in a culture that says, if you steal, you're a thief. If you lie, you're a liar. Instead of, if you steal, you're not a thief. That's not who you are. Let us remind you who you really are so you don't do this again. <laughs> or if you lie, that's not who you really are. You know, we've gotten it backwards. And so we reinforce people or what they do instead of who they are. I am right there with you, Juanita. What, what is amazing to me is that the same people that can make bold statements, like what we need is prison abolition, right? <laughs> uh, which, I, which I love. I love that stance, right? Uh, can also be the people to exile somebody from a space, yeah. right? And cancel them out, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it literally, it, it out of the same space, as if, as if that was a better option uh-huh. <laughs> than prison. It's, it's a really interesting contradiction and one, one, and one that I have really, really seen and even experienced at work. Uh, one of my... One I, of my I, yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to say, one of my teachers, Fanshan Shuer, one of the things that she taught me is shame, blame, and guilt aren't emotions. We actually think they're emotions. She says they're actually where we go to hide from emotions. 
And so, you know, this piece about when shame, blame, or guilt shows up in the room, one of the first questions I ask is, what are you trying not to Wow, feel? that is a great question. And part, and this actually brings us back to the trauma conversation earlier, because what happens when that trauma conversation is out front and when the victim archetype or the shadow side of the victim archetype is what we're leading with is that discomfort is inter- is named triggering. Yeah. Disagreement is named triggering, right? Uh, yeah. Anger is named as a trigger. And, and it's just a misuse, right, of both the, the, the trauma and the word trigger, right? And so as long as you equate any kind of tension, any kind of dislike with triggering your trauma, you will go to all to you will go pretty far not to feel something. And so again, shame, blame, and guilt become yeah. what defines the space as opposed to what, to what liberates it. I, and I think part of it is the call that we have for us right now is courage. You know, I was sitting with a friend one day and she had just given a speech around courage. And she said for the first time, she looked at the word courage and saw the word rage in it and realized that every courageous act has a bit of rage in it. Wow. And what that took me through is um, Robert Bly and Iron John wrote that anger is personal, rage is archetypal. So I started to think, what if courage by definition is communal? Mm-hmm. the moment that we step into a courageous act what we're really doing is we're stepping away from our own personal fear into honoring an individual and collective truth and if doing that would help us to choose courage more often you know and then i started playing because people started telling me oh you know the word core for the beginning for courage is heart so if you put it together heart rage wow and i started you know and there's three different philosophies of the heart there's the heart that's the you know blood pumping heart beating heart um there's the heart that's the passion that kind of pulls us from the outside from our inners to the out the passion that we have and then there's the heart the heart of the matter the true being or the essence of something and what if every time we chose to step into out of our collective, our individual fear into a collective honoring, we were honoring those three essence of the heart all at once. That is so beautiful and, and such an important calling for our time and, and one that then feels wise and ancestral and weaving it all together. Uh, I, there's a real gem here and I'm appreciating, appreciating you deeply for it. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's good to be in conversation with other people that that hold space and that come from a from, from the life experience that, that we come from, right? From uh, and so yeah. it actually uh, brings me to ask: I am getting a lot of your wisdom, right? I am getting what you're working on. I'm getting some of what you've worked on. Uh, how does Juanita become Juanita? What can you tell us? about your life story? Like how, how did this happen? How did this miracle happen? So I, you know, I would say it, it comes from my transformed trauma. Any pain not transformed is transferred. And, you know, for me at um, 16, I went to court and pressed charges against my stepfather for sexual abuse. And um, he was sentenced 90 days to be served on weekends. So I lived with him during the week and he went to jail on the weekends. And wow. Yeah. And so it doesn't feel good at all. So I started my healing journey then. I signed my lease to my first apartment on my 18th birthday and moved out. But I started my healing journey then because, you know, it was how I survived. And so now at 48, I have over 30 years of healing experience under my belt, which then, of course, didn't seem like a gift. But now um, it seems like such a gift um, for the medicine and what I know around um, forgiveness, what I, what I know around culture. My stepfather um, um, is a white man. And so the growing up in his family and my, my family, growing up in white families and families of color, I went to a school performing arts here in Cincinnati that was put together because there was a uh, lawsuit that 
claimed that the school district here was racially segregated and they found out that unintentionally it was because the neighborhoods were so segregated. So our school was created as um, under integration through the arts and was under court mandate to have everything in the school be racially balanced 50-50 during the time that I was there. So we always had two cast performances, but you always knew they were going to you know, cast one black daddy wore bucks and one white daddy wore bucks <laughs> and, uh, and then and, and mix the um, the cast and then alternate performances. Um, so I grew up in a, in a culture too that was racially balanced 50-50. And um, then my children, I, I married a white man. So my children are descendants of slaves and descendants of the sons and daughters of the American Revolution. And so, so much of my life, I think in this work, is that I hold a unique perspective on both cultures and I don't hold either as victim. Mm -hmm. That allows me, I think, to do this work or to see this work in a way that I don't know quite anybody else who does. That is so beautiful. And uh, what I feel as you speak is, um, is an expanded heart, right? A heart that can hold more. And that's something I've really been thinking about in this in these conversations is... When we allow ourselves to feel the things that we don't want to feel, that's when we can heal from them. And that's also what allows us to then feel the joys that are the polar opposite of them. And uh, that kind of heart quality that you bring to, to, to every conversation that I've been with you on, is, it makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense as you share this. Uh, and there's something, Juanita, that I just feel compelled to say uh, is a commitment that I have made to myself. I appreciate mm-hmm. your candor here. Uh, but when a woman shares with me uh, that they have experienced uh, a violation or violence at the hands of a man, uh, I think it's important for me to, I always can make it a point to, to say that I'm sorry, right? That I'm sorry as a, as a cisgender heterosexual man in this culture mm-hmm. for my part. In, in that in that patriarchy for my part in that scourge and uh, I just felt I just felt the need uh, to to say that if, if you would welcome it thank you and I also will say that one of the gifts um, is in the healing that I've done um, is that I have a lot of wonderful sweet men in my life mm-hmm. you know and so you know I think so often, especially when people are early in their journey of healing, um, we can feel that that wound or the, um, the need to survive it is so present that we, you know, um, we can't step into the thriving of. (laughs) And I just have been so blessed to, I think have done enough healing that the men I call up in my community and in my life are um, tend to me well and are very sweet, you know, um, honorable men. Mm, that sounds wonderful, and I think that's a good, a good hopeful lesson for the folks that are out there working on their healing. And and, and I'll, it brings me to one more question, and then I'll I'll close with with two questions I ask every guest, but. You know, I've been doing uh, been doing more healing work. I've been hosting more intentionally healing spaces, sacred medicine work. And what is coming up is, is ever more awareness. And I've had that. I've been a coach a lot. I have somebody people trust. So, so friends share the traumatic experiences with me. So I already knew that the odds of somebody experiencing abuse a young person, particularly women, but not exclusively, were higher than, than the culture talks about, right? Because they're not all talking to just me, right? Like this is how they're happening. And then I'm hosting now these healing spaces and, and it is evident that this is a scourge, right? That this is something yeah. that way more people than we are aware yes. of are having to hold. And, and that the silence around it is key to hold to keeping its power. And so the question that I have is I'm asking for your wisdom here, right? And just to give you just a little bit more context, let's say we have a ceremony, a very powerful ceremony, and hearts open and and memories return, sometimes sometimes repressed memories. And, you know, when we hold a ceremony, we always say, you know, when you come into this gateway, you got to make a commitment to continuing to doing the work after the gateway. You can't think that the ceremony is all that, that it takes. But 
what wisdom um, could you share with me? What could I offer to the folks uh, that are kind of getting into touch with this kind of trauma? Um, what is what are words? What are directions in which I could point them as 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 these memories awaken for them? And they decide that they want to go on the path of liberation and the path of healing. Anything you would offer? Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> so first, thanks for the question. Um, mm, I I think one of the things is that the healing journey or going on our journey. Um, you know, grace is given to the young and the ignorant. <laughs> And there comes a point where you can't claim either. <laughs> and that we have a lot of grace in our journeys of what we're spiritually held accountable to. Mm-hmm. And so when we say yes, and one of the reasons I think we're so resistant to taking on our journey is because it shifts the level of responsibility we have to what's required of us. And I think, especially in this culture that we hold so often, the healing as this light, fluffy kind of thing, I think we're not honest about um, there's a cost to the journey, too. Mm-hmm. And um, and so for me, first of all, I don't take any any place I can't bring them back out. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just mindful of that when I take people in. Yeah. Um, another thing I let people know is that our minds are amazing things and we have a wonderful way of protecting ourselves. And that when things start to surface, it starts to surface because there's a part of us that feels safe enough that it, that we can start tending to some of that. Um, and I, I, I think um, that I would just let people know that a lot of the healing is just deep grief work. Mm-hmm. And in this country, we don't really know how to grieve because we think we can grieve alone. And grief requires community. Yes. Because we'll never go to the depths of our grief. We'll always hold a piece back if we don't have someone holding space for us so we can go all the way to the bottom of it, which then gets us the access to the gift of the womb. But until that, we keep doing that same dive over and over again, but never quite getting to it. And so we end up wallowing in it instead of going through it. And so find people who can hold the space for you to walk all the way through your grief. I think one of the biggest lies or misconceptions we tell about grief is that we all grieve differently. I don't think that's true. I think we all avoid grief differently. Mm -hmm. I think that story helps us to avoid it. The grieving itself is just the feeling of your feelings and allowing them to flow through. The suffering that comes with grief is the resistance to the grief. It's not not embedded in grief itself, (laughs) which I think sometimes we think. Those are, that is very, very powerful wisdom and a wisdom that I'm receiving with a big open heart. I, uh, I am currently having my world transformed and, and, and in a beautiful, blessed way uh, by the words of Francis Heller. Weller. Weller, yes. Weller. In the yes. wild edge of sorrow, right? And oh, yeah. What a powerful word. I love that book. I started writing, after I was reading some of that book, I started writing this poem titled, All My Life I Had a Love Affair with Grief. And writing about how the, my relationship with grief had changed from when I was young until, you know, in my adolescence, into my young adults, until now. And, you know, how that maturing in it and shifting in it has changed me. That's that is beautiful. I can I can feel the wisdom. I can feel like you embodied the wisdom that those that, that word that 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 book transmits. Um, this has been amazing. Uh, there is a, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your generosity and your wisdom and for the work that you've done to get here. Uh, there's a couple of questions I'd ask at the end of this podcast, and and one of them you've already pointed to in so many ways, but I want to ask it anyway, which is. In this day, right, when the ugliest sides of patriarchy are being exposed, right? And because it's been there, it's been hidden, women have known it and experienced it, but we kind of yeah. somehow 
kept keep holding a structure in place with, you know that 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 in, that allows us men and, and those in power to hide from it uh, you know, this me too moment this moment of reckoning uh, I see my work and my own inner work my work with men as as the work of atonement right for my role in all of that and and so a question I ask a powerful woman like yourself when I have this opportunity is, what should men do to meet this moment? I, um, you know, I have conflicting feelings about the Me Too movement. And part of it is because I feel like because we've all been swimming in the water of what's right and real and true is white and male, what we've done is we have told men kind of to step out of or to release in this releasing of patriarchy to release their power, which I actually think is the wrong message. I think actually what we want is we want men to step more and more into their internal power. I think we're not making the distinction between external and internal power. Often when we talk about power, we're just talking about external power. And so for me, External power shifts when conditions shift. Internal power you keep with you forever. And what I want is I want those men to step more and more into their internal power. But in so many places, we're just asking them to kind of shut up and sit down, right? (laughs) And that doesn't serve any of us. You know, it's just replacing an old bad system with a new bad system. What we need is we need for all of us to be stepping more into our internal power. Beautiful. And to move toward that. That sounds that sounds really that sounds right and it sounds beautiful. And I and I appreciate the generosity in it. Uh thank you. I will hold that and share it. And it's part of the work that I'm doing with the Better Men Project. It's this idea that patriarchy and masculinity are not the same thing. No. That we have a very clear discourse on toxic masculinity, but we don't have a well-developed discourse on conscious masculinity, and that the conscious masculinity is actually good for the world and yeah. good for men. Oh, yeah. right? and, uh, and so thank you for, for what you're saying. The last And women support that patriarchy too, I'll yeah. say, because we're all swimming in the water of what's right and real and true is white and male. And so we have to not just replace... Uh, you know, not just replace who we have up front, but we need to change the yardstick altogether. That's right. That sounds, that sounds exactly right. Thank you. Uh, the last question uh, includes a little bit of time travel, light touch facilitation, so it requires some, some level of consent. Uh, uh-huh. But what I do, you know, and I've been doing a, a, a 10-year leap, but I'm going to invite a generational leap, a 20-year leap, right? And so if you can... If you could imagine yourself, visualize yourself 20 years from now, and this work, this intentionality, um, this grind, uh, this surrender, whatever you might call it, all, all the work that you're putting in, right? The vision that you have for yourself and your contribution. Yeah. If if much of it has come true, yeah. right? And, and I, along with all the lessons and the hardships along the way. So I don't even want you to describe it, but I want to see if you can visualize, if you can see yourself there, right? And and, and from there, from that location, yeah, you have it. Can you see it? Yeah. If you if you were to then time travel right back, right, as that, um, what is the wisdom that you would uh, that you would offer to yourself and to us from that perspective? I think um, for myself, part of what I would offer, and it's just a place where, you know, I still drag my feet. Um, It's, I think I would say to myself, to not be afraid of standing in my giant self. Mm. That, um, that I'm protected and safe and that there's no one on the planet who can do what I can do and that it's needed and necessary. Um, And that my survival is none of my business. That's God's business. 
Wow. My job is to show up and to keep my promise. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Very potent, very powerful. I so appreciate it. I appreciate you. I can't wait to get this out to our listeners. I know it will be well received. This is timely. Um, it is wise and it is beautiful. Um, it is great. I feel blessed to be in community with you. Thank you so much for, for this time. Thank you. I'm so, I mean, whenever I get invited, you know, to um, be with people who have deep heart and deep mind, <laughs> I feel so blessed because I feel like those are the spaces where transformation can occur. So thank you. Thank you for doing your work in the world and for uh, all that it's taken for you to get here because it's not by accident these journeys we're on. <laughs> Amen. That is exactly right. Yeah. That is right. Thank you so much, Juanita. And we will be sure to link to you on our show notes so that people can find you. But if yeah. the, is there a website that people can, can go to right now if they wanted to, to learn more about you? Yes. And so the first is my website, which is www.nzuzu.com. And then for the cohort, we have it's www.fireandwaterleadership.weebly.com. And those are the two.